And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Force 5 Podcast. I'm your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow list nerd, Jason Kleberg. Lately, we've had kind of a run on location-specific lists. We had New York, we had Texas, we had the Midwest. And I think it's really cool that people are passionate about somewhere that they're either from or have a deep connection to. The assignment for my guests is always going to be a topic that they feel strongly about, and it just so happens that recently a lot of these have been different states. And to close out that topic genre for a little while, I was honored to have Noah Evslin join me for one last location-specific list, one that he has a great connection to, Hawaii. Not only is he the writer of NCIS Hawaii, but he's from Hawaii, so it doesn't get much more authentic than that. For me, I use Hawaiian-based films as kind of a glimpse into the state because I've never been there. I do hope to visit someday, but have not yet gotten the chance to get there. It really looks wonderful on film, and I'm sure it's even better looking in person. Today's list is also interesting in that the term Hawaiian films meant something different to each of us. So my picks were solely films that were set in Hawaii, whereas the bulk of Noah's picks were films that were shot in his hometown of Kauai. Both lists are really varied, and there's a lot to offer here, so I hope that you enjoy what we put together for you. I should also note that when we get to the list, this episode was recorded a little while ago, so I was still recovering from COVID, so if I sound completely different and I, you, you can tell I'm like out of breath, talking like Stevie from Malcolm in the Middle, that's why I was still dealing with COVID. Now, the last show was a good one. Top five ripoffs with Cassidy Robinson from the MacGuffin podcast. And a lot of people chimed in across social media. But I want to start with an email I got from Ethan from Seattle, who sent a message to me at force5podcast at gmail.com. It starts with, hey there, I want to start by saying I do like the show, but it's funny that you did an episode about ripoffs when your show is basically a ripoff of the film vault. <laughs> First off, I've had a lot of influences in creating this podcast, and the film vault is definitely one of the biggest. I've never hidden that fact. I've been talking with Anderson while well, I've talked to Anderson Cowan from that show, and hopefully when he frees up, he'll be on at some point. But my initial email to him straight up stated that I shamelessly ripped off their format. I also have elements of the film cast here. Uh, those guys are a big influence on me, and I'm influenced a lot by the interview style of Sean Evans from Hot Ones. So I guess what I'm saying is that I'm proud to be a ripoff, as some of those films we talked about should be proud to be ripoffs too. Anyway, social media responses from the last show. F5's number one fan, Sean Aguilar, says Mac and Me, the E.T. ripoff, of course. The Duplicate Puma says Avatar ripped off Fern Gully, which uh, is interesting. I've not seen Avatar. It's one of these big blockbuster movies that I have not seen. I've heard that it also rips off uh, Pocahontas, and I've heard Dances with Wolves. Truman B12 said Piranha, yes, the Jaws ripoff. Mikey Boss said A Fistful of Dollars, which was a ripoff of Yojimbo. I have not seen Yojimbo, unfortunately, I need to see that. And Infinity Plus One said the Star Wars ripoff Battle Beyond the Stars. Let's talk about some of the stuff I've been watching first up. The newest in Pixar's repertoire, straight to Disney Plus, the 2022 film Turning Red. Let's go. I'm Maylin Lee. I wear what I want, say what I want, 24 7, 365. I know, it's a lot. But I don't got time to mess around. All about that hustle, am I right? 
A 13-year-old girl wakes up one morning and realizes that she turns into a giant red panda when she's stressed out. The lead-up to the release of Turning Red has been something else. There's been backlash because the film was not offered a theatrical release, playing solely on Disney+, just like I believe Soul was. And then the talk was all about how Pixar had made a getting your first period movie. Oh no, but that's not necessarily true either. And then finally, there were reviews that posited that if you weren't a minority woman, it would be impossible to connect with. At its core, Turning Red is a movie about growing up and finding your place. It's about becoming a woman and it's about generational trauma. It's a tale as old as time, but here it's presented with a new twist on visual representation alongside fantastic animation. The main character is May. She's a typical teenage girl living in Toronto's Chinatown. She plays an instrument, is discovering boys, and loves the boy band Four Town. After school, she helps run a Chinese temple, a local tourist attraction owned by her family. After a tense fight with her overprotective conservative mother, she wakes up in the form of an oversized red panda and almost instantly realizes that if she can keep calm, she'll turn back into a human. Easy enough, right? Except she runs into stress at school almost immediately. And as the film progresses, May has to deal with her newfound inconvenience, as well as her mother finding out that the more they grow apart, the more they actually have in common, culminating with an exciting sequence at Toronto's Sky Dome. This film is unique in that all of the department leads were women, which makes the story and characters feel true to life. It was directed by Domi Shi, and this was her first feature. Previously, she'd worked for Pixar as a storyboard artist on films like Toy Story 4 and Incredibles 2. She also directed the really fantastic Pixar short Bao. Par for the course, the animation looks fantastic, and the art style is actually really unique for a Pixar film. It has a very anime vibe to it in terms of movement, facial expressions, including some super scion kinds of battle sequences as the film progresses. It almost felt like Scott Pilgrim if told from the view of a 13-year-old girl. There's also a delicious nightmare sequence that's really well constructed, one that my three-year-old thought was pretty scary. And honestly, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of chilling. The story structure is also pretty unique. You might think that the film is leading up to this ritual sequence, the only way to get rid of this panda curse, and that the climax of the film is going to be May and this panda being excised from one another. And of course that ritual is going to happen, but it does so at the end of the second act, leaving a whole third act of the story still to come. Turning red does not feel like a movie made for me, which is totally fine, but I still found it really entertaining. That being said, if you connect with the family structure or identify with the characters, you'll get even more out of this movie. It's a gorgeous coming-of-age picture about dealing with puberty, a time that's uncomfortable for everybody, finally becoming mature enough to develop your own interests while still trying to be the person that your parents want you to be, plus you get like a Godzilla type of sequence, which is rad. I also watched two Vinegar Syndrome films this week, the first of which is titled Wolfpack from 1987. When Sam Adams transferred to New Jersey's Wave High School, he had dreams of playing tight end for the Wave Wolfpack, improving his social studies grades, and an eventual Princeton scholarship. Instead, he found himself in the thick of a fascist school takeover. 
I had no idea what I was getting into with Vinegar Syndrome's Wolf Pack. Based on the title and year alone, I was expecting a high school werewolf movie. However, this went in a completely different direction. There are no werewolves here. The film kicks off mid-game as the wolf pack is on the business end of a 35 to nothing shellacking on their home field. The coach's son Ralph is under center, even though the guy could barely throw a tantrum, let alone a football. And this is where Jack Butkowski's plan comes into play. With four minutes left, the offensive line turns on young Ralph. I thought we'd get an intentionally missed block like when the Detroit Lions' Lomas Brown set Scott Mitchell up to die. Instead, we get the offensive lineman literally tackling his own quarterback with a late hit, and then another teammate just kind of runs in and cleats him in the back. Ralph leaves the game half dead, and everybody just kind of acts like this is normal. Soon after, Sam Adams, a kid unfortunately named after a mid-tier beer, and his mom come into town. He's played by TV journeyman actor Jim Abele, or Jim Abel, who was 25 at the time this was filmed and looks every year of it. They're staying with Pudge Purdy, an old guy who uses the auto shop at the school to tinker around. On Sam's first day, he runs into Myra Abbott, and the two start dating shortly after. It's a romance that has never given the attention that it needed to feel special, and if you cut the character of Myra out completely, the movie would have been exactly the same, although with a reduced hug count. Aside from Myra, the school is filled with nothing but white jerks. Seriously, aside from one or two shots of a black football player on the squad, there's no representation here. Wave is, however, packed with the stereotypes of typical mid-80s, this school is bad, punk characters and jocks, and both groups hate each other. In the first clash we see, one of the punks is just being a douche and throws a popsicle stick on the ground, and Wedge, the offensive lineman who trashed Ralph, tells him to pick it up. Myra steps in and tells Wedge off, but I gotta be honest, I was on Wedge's side here. Like, screw anybody that litters. Turns out Bukowski is trying to rid the school of who he deems undesirable. Purity and power, as he says, with a football team full of guys named Wedge, Frame, and Stick, ready to enforce the school rules by brute force if necessary. Of course, Wave High School isn't the world as Sam rebuts, but it is, as Jack Boot says, a part of the world. The fascist undertones are not subtle, especially in moments where Jack addresses crowds of like-minded nutjobs. But then again, in an age in which Donald Trump sat in the Oval Office for four years, I guess fascist subtlety is dead. As Sam attempts to distance himself from the wolf pack, we can see everything heading towards a bombastic clash during the climax. That, unfortunately, never comes. The most intense drama we get in the film is during onstage debates for class president spots that only really seem to matter in movies. The film was directed by Bill Milling, a prolific porn director of such films as Virgin Snow and Blonde in Black Silk under pseudonyms like Dexter Eagle, Philip Drexler Jr., and Craig Ashwood. It appears that Wolfpack was his attempt to get into more serious filmmaking as this movie doesn't have a semblance of sexuality. But after this, two middling sex comedies, and the women in prison film Caged Fury, his career behind the camera was all but over. It's unsurprising. The lack of skill behind the camera is apparent. Shots are static and have almost no visual style outside of a cool but poorly done shot of a pack of men in wolf masks and a surprisingly stylish shot of Pudge and Sam sharing a bag of tortilla chips. Everything about the craft of this movie feels amateurish. The writer Fred Sharkey Jr. was never credited as writing anything after this. Maybe it's because this film has a few striking similarities to a certain 1981 ABC made-for-TV film in which a teacher starts an experiment in fascism that goes too far, perhaps coincidentally titled The Wave. 
I'm telling you, Wolfpack was an exercise in the underwhelming. There are a few things that would have made the film a lot better, and in today's age, it feels like a good remake could be an easy creation. First, it feels like no one making the film had ever seen or played football. Butkowski is supposed to be the star quarterback, but he looks more like Chris Everett than Jim Everett. Shout out to Jim Rome. In one scene, he throws a bomb to his new star tight end, and the ball has the rotation of a punt. Watch in another scene as an opposing team's Jared Lorenzen slowly runs towards Wedge, who apparently plays both ways and gets clotheslined in a scene that looks straight out of the water boy. In summation, the football action has to feel like actual football. Second, the on-field brutality needs to be shown. We're told these guys are really bad dudes, but none of the action looks like it would hurt very much. And finally, this is New Jersey. You need some representation in the picture. It can't just be white males. The Vinegar Syndrome disc looks good, but has some noticeable print scratches here and there. There are also some weird out-of-focus shots looking up at the players in the huddle, but I'm guessing that's not Vinegar Syndrome's fault as much as it was a problem with a poorly trained camera operator. There's an interview on the disc with the director, but disappointingly, there's no commentary track. I find it really hard to recommend Wolfpack from 1987. It just kind of bored me. The other Vinegar Syndrome disc I watched this week was Too Beautiful to Die from 1988. A woman is raped at a party and then killed shortly after she leaves. Later, people who are at the party are being knocked off one by one. Is it the dead model back from the grave and looking for revenge? Or is it the mysterious new girl who took the dead model's place? One thing's for sure, in Too Beautiful to Die, nobody is too beautiful to die. This film was titled Soto il Vestido Niente 2 in Italy, making it a sequel in name only to the 1985 film Nothing Underneath. Whereas that film tackled a murder mystery in the Milan fashion industry, this one takes place in the then-budding world of the music video. A sleazeball named Alex runs the talent agency supplying girls for a Frankie Goes to Hollywood Mad Max-themed video shoot, and when the girls head back to his house for a party, a powerful old dude who somehow has the other girls wrapped around his fingers uses his brigade of models to hold one girl captive in a jacuzzi while he rapes her. This party is ridiculous, by the way, and looks like what someone would fantasize an all-female model get-together might look like. Naked models lounging in a hot tub, laughing and playing with each other's hair. Understandably, the victim leaves in a haste, which interrupts Alex's computer game, simply titled Porno Game. Yes, he's sitting there playing <laughs> this game with, like, NES-level graphics of pink cartoons banging each other. Three hours later, the girl is found dead with a bullet in her head inside of an exploded car, and that's where our giallo kicks off. The rest of the film features the other people who were at the party being killed in deadly but disappointingly tame ways. The murder weapon is a prop from the Mad Max-style set, and it's got four big blades on it. For as cool as it looks, and with the promise of being such a devastating instrument of death, we never actually see much damage done to the bodies on screen. We get some slashes, we get some pokes, we get some swipes, but the amount of red stuff is pretty tame here. Like most Jallos, this film takes all kinds of narrative twists and turns as you try to figure out who the black-gloved killer is, but when the maestro is finally revealed, the explanation is pretty weak and poorly explained. Unfortunately, a lot of the film drags every time we cut back to the detective on the case. He's an uninteresting character who seems to lack basic investigative skills and lucks into finding actual information more often than Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. It's not a film without its merits, though. The director, Dario Piana, was a prolific television commercial director, and his style and panache catering to short attention spans really shines through here, with some really well-constructed shots and a lot of interesting camera work. The film starts off in the space of a music video shoot, but the entire thing kind of feels like one long music video. 
The music choices are also stellar. I've never seen a Jallo movie with a Huey Lewis and the News song in it, and there's a sex scene set to the Toto piano ballad, I Won't Hold You Back, that was brilliant and left the song stuck in my head for the remainder of the day. What the film lacks in pacing and blood, it sure as hell makes up for with style. The late 80s decor is another visual treat with things like enormous novelty phones and plastic blow-up chairs used as actual serious furniture, rearing their ugly but amusing heads. The set gas that made it into the final film only add to the charm for me, uh, the best of which being a winch pulley or counterweight from an actor's harness that we see enter the corner of the screen as they fall to their death. While Too Beautiful to Die was a decent enough watch, it's hard to feel good recommending it to anybody outside of hardcore Jallo superfans. While most of the film is visually arresting, the kills are not, and the acting and story feel like they were written by aliens who had only seen music videos and attempted to recreate one that was an hour and a half long. This can be frustrating, but can also be amusing, like a short montage of two girls who just became roommates and interact with the gusto of two eight-year-olds who just became best friends. I honestly thought we were going to see a pillow fight during that montage. The Vinegar Syndrome disc, which shares a box with its spiritual sister film, Nothing Underneath, looks nice, both being restored in 4K from the 35mm original negatives. It doesn't have that many special features, but it does have a commentary track that I'm hoping to dig into soon, as well as an interview with the director and some storyboards of deleted scenes and the alternate ending. Today's episode is brought to you by Nerves, flagship software, Synapse. Oh, wait till you hear about this one. Led by the genius Gary Winston, Nerve stands for Never Underestimate Radical Vision. And when you see what Synapse can do, you'll agree that this is going to change the world. Gary, tell him a little bit more about it. Moments, precious moments that you want to hold, that you want to share at home, at school, at work. You'll keep in touch with the ones you love through Synapse, the first satellite-delivered global communications system. Share live voices or music, pictures or video, data or text with anyone, anywhere, instantly. Look, Daddy. Synapse links every communication device on the planet because every moment matters. I am really excited for this software. Can you imagine being able to share things like text and photos with your loved ones? Being able to send a video to somebody directly it's a game changer, just amazing nerve. It's all you need. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Noah Evslin. He's been involved with many shows you know and love, producing things like Grey's Anatomy, How to Get Away with Murder and Scandal, and has written for Colony, Hawaii Five-O and currently writes for and produces the newest in CBS's NCIS lineup, NCIS Hawaii. He also co-hosts a podcast called Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss that features creators talking about their Hollywood experiences that did not go as planned. Noah Evzelin, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me on your show. Thanks for coming on. Super excited to have you. Um, obviously, NCIS has a long lineage, like almost 20 years with the original NCIS you had Los Angeles, New Orleans. What drew you to NCIS Hawaii? Um, you know, I think in in many ways, it's you, you often don't have like the pick of the litter of like, well, these are the 20 shows that I want to staff on and I'm going to let them know and then they're just going to hire me. <laughs> uh, I think what 
made me attractive to them was I am originally from Hawaii and I have worked on other Hawaii shows like Hawaii Five O and have been in the network world for most of my career. So uh, not exclusively, but most of my career. So the, the, you know, I was fairly well suited, I think to be, to join their staff. And, and, you know, on my side, it's just a dream come true. It's, I currently live in Los Angeles with my uh, wife and two kids, but we're from Hawaii and I, miss Hawaii. So it's, it lets me uh, think about my home in a way that I otherwise wouldn't and tell stories about Hawaii was the dream to begin with. So I get to live my dream, which is, you know, fairly rare in this business. That's awesome. And obviously an inspiration for our list topic tonight, which is top five Hawaii movies. Before we get into our list here, what are some of your favorite films of all time that might not take place in Hawaii? (laughs) That's a really good question. And somebody just asked me that question. Uh, one of the directors I was working with, it's sort of his uh, icebreaker question when he's, you know, just chatting in between takes. It's like, what's your favorite movies? And there's obviously, you know, you want to answer really artsy and you want to answer really, you know, cleverly. And, I, you know, I tend to have fairly commercial tastes uh, in films. I'm not picking, you know, things that are in your French new wave or whatever. <laughs> I, I I have tried to broaden my horizons by watching, you know, many of the classic films. Like for instance, The Godfather one and two are undeniably amazing films. And um, I also love Casino and I've loved some, you know, um, you know, many of the nineties and early aughts or maybe mid nineties action films and sort of Tony Scott movies are sort of, amazing and you can watch them over and over and over again so those are definitely um up on my list um but you know i also you know as far as being a writer the the movies like the thomas crown affair um i I like also you know this is gonna you know some people will probably laugh at this choice but you know i i like some of the action films by kurtzman and orsi just as an inspiration to being like oh what kind of writing do i want to do or Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott, they did uh, the first couple of Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Like that was big four quadrant film. And I was like, wow, this is what it means to write a movie and 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 that you people can actually do these things. So my, my, my choices are sort of wide and broad. And, you know, I, I never know on any given day, every year, obviously we get, uh, you know, all the screeners for the, for the movies. And, and it's hard for me or anyone else to pin down what I'm going to like. Like, for instance, I really love Power of the Dog this year, which was controversial to some people. And I didn't love West Side Story, although I love Steven Spielberg. So again, it's, you know, it, 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 it's case by case for me, you know, and, and I think my list rotates a lot just because it just depends on what I'm in the mood for. And also, Weirdly enough, I you know I write horror. People don't know that, but I often you know because that's not where my success has uh, <laughs> been mostly. But you know, and and so there are certain horror films that I I get inspired by. So it just depends on like what's my research, what am I looking into, what am I obsessed with at the seconds. Uh, for instance, I think the movie Deliverance is amazing and is yeah. like one of the movies that you can emulate as a writer and going just four people going into the woods. But that's obviously not what that movie is about, right? That's It's about so much more than that. But how do you keep the through line really simple? Tell a really simple plot while having super complex characters, obviously easier said than done. So it's a little harder when you're in the business and in the industry because you're 
your inspirations are a little bit different and what you're looking at is a little bit different and your moods are a little bit different depending on what um, you're writing. And so, you know, also on top of uh, my work on NCIS, I'm sort of working on a, a biopic. And so, yeah, I'm watching all of them and I love them. They're interesting, but man, that's a hard, that's a hard genre. So it's like, you have to be really, you know, you know, just, just pick and choose carefully. Yeah. I didn't know that you wrote horror. Uh, I was actually just talking about this with my wife because horror is one of my favorite genres and there aren't a whole lot of horror movies set in Hawaii for some reason. Yeah. And that's something we can, you know, something that I, you know, when I went back to Hawaii for the pandemic, I attempted to write a low budget horror movie there, a single location so that, you know, it was horror, something you can shoot as, uh, you know, eventually I've directed a short, but, you know, eventually I'd like to direct. And so some of the horror that I've written has been for me to direct because it's, um, it's something that I feel like I can do something I feel like is you can get at a manageable budget. And if you can create the scares, you're going to have something that's really interesting. Uh, and so I had sold a horror feature uh, to Warner Brothers two years ago that I was on as writer and director. Uh, unfortunately, the pandemic killed it and we're just getting it back. So it's that was a little bit of a, you know, that was just about to start. And, you know, my podcast is all about heartbreak <laughs> in the film industry. <laughs> and that was one of my, obviously, that's not what this is about, but it was like one of my bigger heartbreaks of like, just not being able to, you know, get that movie off the ground, but that's super normal. And I believe in it and the project's going back out and, you know, it, hopefully it'll find life again. That's awesome. I'm excited for you on that front. And it's, uh, it's great that you brought up the podcast. Cause I was going to talk about that as well. I love your podcast screaming into the Hollywood abyss features all kinds of amazing showrunners that just talk about those things that didn't work out. And, uh, it's a really humbling podcast to hear people like uh, Bill Lawrence talk about these things that didn't work out. You know, obviously he's immensely successful with things like Scrubs and with uh, Ted Lasso, stuff like that. But there are so many things that didn't work out. And it gives people like me who are trying to get a screenplay sold some of that hope that every time you get a rejection, at, at some point you may, you may strike that lightning in a bottle. So a really great podcast that I urge listeners to check out. In terms of Hawaii movies, do you think we'll have any crossover on our lists? I'm guessing we will. I mean, but Hawaii surprisingly, not or not surprisingly, because it can be anything, has, um, you know, so many movies are filmed there every year. And, you know, and it was obviously the film industry coming to Hawaii which inspired me to come to Hollywood at all. That was like, wait a second, people make these things and how do you make them? And it was a little demystified, and especially, you know, I'm, I'm mostly a TV writer. So it, it was lost, which isn't going to be on my list because obviously we're talking about movies, but uh, lost coming to Hawaii and then realizing that someone actually wrote that TV show, that the actors didn't just make up the words on the fly, that it was like, there was craft behind it. And that maybe this is something that I can do, which has sort of inspired me to, uh, switch, you know, I was sort of like tinkering around in features a little bit, writing uh, novels, but I'm like, oh man, I think I'm way better suited for TV. And uh, I love, you know, the mysteries and the twists and turns of this show set, you know, in my home state, but obviously not as my home state in the show. Right, right. Yeah, that's, a, that's amazing. Uh, well, I'm excited to hear about those films that are on your list that probably influenced you in some way or another. And we'll see. Yeah, I've, I've kind of weird 
genre specific tastes. So I've got a couple of deep cuts on my list and I'd be interested to see if anything crosses over here. Noah, are you ready to get to this list? Let's do it. You know what's gonna happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's gonna happen. What? You just made the list. Top five Hawaiian movies. I'm gonna go ahead and kick things off here with one of my more obvious choices. This is from 2002, Lilo and Stitch. I was singing here. His name is Stitch. And he's coming to our galaxy this summer. Disney's Lilo and Stitch. So you're from outer space. I heard the surfing's choice. So for those who haven't seen Lilo and Stitch, it's about this runaway genetic experiment from a faraway planet named Stitch. He's a great little lovable creature. He's blue. He's got four arms. And he comes down, he crash lands on Hawaii, and he starts wreaking havoc on the islands. He becomes the adopted alien puppy of a little girl named Lilo and learns about loyalty, friendship, and of course, Ohana, the Hawaiian tradition of family. This film rocks. Lilo and Stitch is awesome. It's one that I haven't shown my kid yet. My kid's uh, just about to be four years old. I have not shown him Lilo and Stitch because uh, Stitch is a little bit, he's a little bit mischievous and I don't want my kids seeing the the violence of, of Stitch just yet. But as an adult, I love this character. He's a great character. He's adorable. He's fluffy. He loves Elvis. He's just like a time bomb waiting to unleash disaster at any moment. He's definitely a shoot first, ask questions later kind of alien at first. But that leads to some really, really funny moments, like when he tries to threaten a frog and the frog's just like chilling as he has four guns pointed at the frog. And then he tries to uh, back down a truck, which doesn't really work well for Stitch. It's filled with some really fun 50s sci-fi tropes for nerds like me, but it also has some really touching moments, a lot to say about the flaws in humans in general. It's very funny. It's got some really great action scenes, too. The animation's really well done, and it's got these watercolor backgrounds that are just beautiful and really scream Hawaii. It came out in a time when Disney was in this weird kind of transitional period with their animation. Like, they had some commercial flops. They had Atlantis that came out, uh, Emperor's New Groove came out and then Lilo and Stitch. And even after that, there was a couple of duds. And this one sometimes gets lost in that shuffle, but I honestly think it's one of Disney's best. Lilo and Stitch from 2002. That's my number five. Man, I, I have pick envy because I should have picked that. <laughs> it's a great film. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I do want to add that his uh, Lilo and Stitch was actually set, although it's an animated film, it was set on Kauai, which is my home island, number one. Uh, and I should have picked it for my list because I just told Jason that I'm limiting my list to movies set on the island of Kauai, not only the state of Hawaii. And that's going to give me a lot to pick up, pick from because something like 80 feature films have been shot on the island of Kauai over the course of the last hundred years. Uh, and also just fun fact that not a lot of people know, my uh, production company and loan out company is actually called Ohana Productions, which if you oh, nice. pitch, you know that Ohana means family. Uh, so I had a hard time with this f number five th because there's so many choices of films that the top four were fairly straightforward for me. It was, and I won't get to them right now, but I knew what they were. 
Number five, there was movies like Six Days and Seven Nights that almost made the cut. Hobbs and Shaw was filmed in on the oh, island yeah. of Kauai. Partly, it almost made the cut, but because it 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 was only a small part, I I decided against picking that film. Um, and there was a few others like Outbreak and and whatever that were like right on the edge of of making the cut. But I ended up going with just a fun family classic, uh, Jungle Cruise. So what are you doing out here? There is a legend in the jungles of the Amazon of a tree that heals all. It could change the world, but if it gets into the wrong hands, it could awaken a great evil. I believe that the legend is real. Which it's not. And I'm going to find it. Which you want. And when I do, just imagine the lives that could be saved. I've been looking for this tree longer than anybody. I've tracked the legend to every village, every island, nothing. You're searching for something that can't be found. But you've never had the key. Let's do something that's safe. Let's go see some elephants. There are no elephants in the Amazon, and I don't even like elephants. Lady, everybody likes elephants. Directed by Jaume Calacera, who I worked with once on something. And I picked it in many ways because I am a huge, huge fan of the screenplays of Michael Green. And this was one of his screenplays. He writes great four-quadrant family films. Uh, and he wrote it along with Glenn Ficarra and Josh Requa. I mean, John Requa. And, uh, you know, Jungle Cruise is 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 a, The Rock and, and Emily Blunt at their campiest. It, it was fun to see my island, you know, sort of done up that way. Uh, and it was shot sort of in the reservoirs of the island of, of, of Kauai. And uh, yeah, I just had fun with it. And it was, it was, you know, I, I ended up saying because that movie made me happy and gave me some escapism during the pandemic, it made my number five. Yeah, this is a really, really fun movie. And I think it's anchored by the chemistry between all three leads. Uh, it's really fun. It kind of lost me a little bit when it started getting into the supernatural stuff, but I had a, a lot of fun watching uh, Blunt and The Rock kind of work off of each other. I thought that was really fun. And and I also, they're not really making adventure movies like this as much anymore. So right. I feel like, I mean, kind of it was based on a big IP, which Disney likes, but it was just fun family. You know, it reminded me of the old, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, the original movies in that franchise where it just was big spectacle. It wasn't very intellectual, obviously, but it just was like, it was the type of escapism that when you go to like Universal Studios and you hear the theme music when you're on the backlot ride and you're like, yeah, this is kind of why I'm in Hollywood. And so that's kind of what, uh, why it made my list. I agree. I think in my review of it, I said that it reminded me of a more family friendly Pirates of the Caribbean, which can get, that movie can get really scary at times. Jungle Cruise was a little bit more laid back, although it did have those kind of scary uh, specters. Uh, but yeah. yeah, great choice. Great choice. Uh, for my number four, I'm going to go with something in uh, in the very low budget, but very fun genre that I love. I believe this one was produced by Roger Corman. So that's where my head's at for this one. It's a 1986 movie that I would be surprised if you were familiar with called Silk. There's a new cop in the Vice Squad. A cop who does things a little differently. A cop who is going to clean up the man's world. The cop is a woman. Do you like taking the big ride? 
must be the lady called Silk. By night, she's smooth as silk. By day, she's tough as steel. So um, this one was directed by a guy named Sirio Santiago, who is most famous, I think, for doing Mad Max ripoffs. But this is kind of his version of a Hawaiian Dirty Harry ripoff. And in this version, Dirty the Dirty Harry character is played by uh, Czech Varel, and it's a, a female named Jenny Silk Slayton. She's billed as the toughest cop in Honolulu. She busts these small-time smugglers and in doing so reveals a larger syndicate that's smuggling Asian mobsters into the States by buying the identities of Hawaiian citizens. This is purely a B-movie guilty pleasure for me. Uh, I just love the fact that they have this female Dirty Harry running around in Hawaii. To, to set the scene for you, the opening has Silk chasing bad guys while she's on a train and the bad guys are next to the train driving in a car. She shoots the driver, the car flips really kind of tamely, but it explodes into a giant fireball. And that's the kind of movie that this is. It feels like a toned-down Andy Sadar's film, with less wild action and no nudity. Uh, she has like a, a you feel lucky punk line. She says, how you feel slick? Feel like taking the big ride as she's got a, a shotgun pointed at a guy. There's another line where somebody says, I don't know why they call you silk. And she says, it's because I'm so fucking smooth. <laughs> I just love the character of silk. We, we see in the finale, she's chasing down a plane on foot shooting it with an M16 until it blows up in a ball of fire. Uh, in terms of like Hawaii being featured, a lot of the, the state is shown. We get a luau, like a lot of the traditional Hawaiian uh, scenery. And I want to say one more thing about Silk here. It's got a great theme song. In the late 80s, a lot of movies had theme songs built just for them. And this one was clearly built for this movie. It's got lines like, You've gone too far, Silk's gonna get you no matter where you are. And she's smooth as silk, she'll feed you milk. And I have no idea what that means. Silk at number four. There was also a Silk 2 but it has absolutely nothing to do with this different character and everything. Uh, the original Silk, 1986. That's my number four. I'm going to need to check that out now. Uh, I, I'm fairly well-versed in most Hawaii movies, so I'm going to have to, you know, do a, do a little bit of a deep dive into Silk. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you can find this one, like, on on uh, YouTube or anything, but uh, it's good. My number four, I have really mixed feelings about it for a story I'm going to tell you. Uh, I was actually in this movie, not as a as a major star, obviously, but as a as a featured extra. Uh, it's the 2008 Tropic Thunder, directed by Ben Stiller, written by Justin Theroux, Ben Stiller, and Eaton Cohen. I'm coming, man. Don't you die on me, Foley. I'm sorry. Can we cut? <laughs> what is going on here? Hey, I'm about to jump off this, this helicopter like Wesley Snipes. I'm doing the scene right now. What I'm scene? In it. The scene is about emotionality. Where is it? Oh, God, I am dealing with a bunch of prima donnas. The action guy. Who left the fridge open? 
Award winner. Critically acclaimed Australian actor Kirk Lazarus underwent a controversial procedure in order to play the platoon's African-American sergeant. I know who I am. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. The comedian. You think you can do what I do? Take a picture of this. Tropic Thunder, many people, you know, have obviously heard of this movie and seen it you know, features Ben Stiller and a handful of act people playing actors who are in a war movie that that you realize quickly uh, the director has sort of tricked them into thinking that it's a real war is going on. And what they don't realize is that they're actually really under attack and they keep on thinking they're in this movie when they're actually, they're really under threat. Now, I, I was a DJ at the time when this movie uh, came out and I was a DJ in the island of Kauai and I was DJing a number of the clubs and uh, unbeknownst to me this movie was starting to cast and they needed a DJ for this party sequence and that, that mostly got cut by the time the movie aired but they had this giant party sequence and in that party sequence the director was uh, Steve Coogan was telling the actors that they basically needed to behave or they were going to get shut down because they were these big stars in the movie itself. The movie in the movie was going to get shut down. Right. And uh, they needed a DJ to sort of play the party. So they approached me and they asked me to play the party. And um, I, they wanted me to bring all my, my turntables, my gear, my speakers. And they said, Listen, you're going to keep the energy up, but you're also, we need a DJ in the scene and we want you to be that DJ. So I'm like, wow, this is great. I'm going to be in a movie and I get to DJ and, uh, you know, whatever. So the day comes and I set up all the gear, my turntables, I bring my records. And this was sort of back when we were DJing off a of vinyl. And the I have to go to some meeting. Uh, and as I'm at the meeting, I hear my system turn on. And I hear wicker, 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 wicker. And I'm like, what is going on? And somebody is standing in, you know, in the area where my turntables were, has turned on the whole system, is now using my records to scratch. And he doesn't really know how to do it. And I run over there and we get in a, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, that's my gear. And he's like, well, I'm one of the producers of the movie. And the first AD comes running over and he's like, you can't be yelling at this guy. I'm like, this is all my DJ gear. What are they doing? Uh, anyways, turns out I'm not going to get this guy's name because he's really huge and he's a really huge actor as well and uh, it's not the person you think it is but it's a very big name who wanted to be in the film wanted to be the dj and uh he ended up being the dj and taking my role and i just sort of became a background person and then it just the night went from bad to worse it rained on everything oh. so when when the movie was done i'm like i want to hate this movie like i'm just gonna like this 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 i have a lot of bad feelings about this shoot and this is my first hollywood experience i'm over it i don't want you know i hope this movie is terrible <laughs> and the movie is about as funny as it comes. Like it, I, I, I could watch this movie over and over and over again. And I, and you do glimpse me in that party scene, which I think parts of it doesn't relegated to the end. I can't remember. There was a version where I was in it, and then I think it got cut down in between the theatrical and the DVD. And my role, like I think I'm only in there for like a heartbeat now. But they gave me SAG. You know, I got a lot of. I somehow I was still a credited role, so they gave me the opportunity to get my SAG card, which I never did. And uh, anyways, uh, a very memorable experience for a movie that is one of the funniest of all time. 2008's Tropic Thunder, my number four. Man, that's a, an amazing story, first off. I'm sorry that it didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to, but agree, I think this is a fantastic movie. And I'm ashamed that I didn't think of this one because obviously the movie within the movie is not set in Hawaii. Yeah, that's a huge miss by me. I love this movie. It's a great movie. 
Now I know what you're feeling by not picking uh, Lilo and Stitch. Yeah. So I'm feeling that same way. My number three is one that I brought up on my episode about underrated non-horror sequels that I did with Jim Hemphill. I think it's a really underrated sequel, and half of it takes place in Hawaii. It is 1996's A Very Brady Sequel. Summer's almost over. School's about to begin. Pack the flower shirts. We're going to Hawaii. Side. Before it's too late, take a Brady break. I'll go first because I'm the prettiest. Oh, Alice. Are you the skinny decaf mochaccino? Hey, who are you calling skinny? Paramount Pictures presents... I'll make up an imaginary boyfriend. A very Brady sequel. I'm so happy for you, Jim. Really, Marcia? No. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, August... Like I said, the, the original Brady Bunch movie was sits at like 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. This one at 53. So critics liked the first one more. I liked the second one more. It's about a man who claims to be Carol Brady's long-lost first husband, Roy Martin. He shows up at the the, the Brady house one evening. Uh, He's obviously an imposter, and he's determined to steal the Brady's horse statue, which happens to be a $20 million ancient Asian artifact. But after his plan is revealed, he kidnaps Carol, he takes the statue, and he takes her to Hawaii to where he's going to sell it and the Brady's follow to foil the plan. This one's directed by Arlene Sanford, who went on to a long career directing episodes of TV. I like the fact that unlike so many sequels, the plot is not a retread of the first film. I really appreciate that. It's got a lot of funny moments, a lot of funny moments. In that other episode, I mentioned the dance number that's really funny that they do on the airplane, and everybody's looking at him like, what the hell are you guys doing? A ton of funny one-liners. It really plays up the naivete of the Brady family. Uh, there's there's a scene where like Peter, who's working at the architecture firm that his dad works at as an intern, they keep bringing up the big house and he thinks it's like uh, <laughs> just a big house. He doesn't realize that it's jail. Just the, the general ridiculousness of the plot as this guy Roy claims he had amnesia and then plastic surgery and that's why they don't recognize him. And he's insulting the Brady's left and right, but they're so uh, they're so aloof that they're taking them as compliments. I I just think it's a really funny movie, and I stand by it. It also had it. There was the uh, it's kind of loosely based on the TV episodes where the Brady family went to Hawaii, which uh, again classic TV episodes. So yeah, I stand by it. A very Brady sequel from 1996. That's my number three. When I wrote a feature and I turned it into my agent at the time, they said, can you make it more like that Brady Bunch movie that was uh, set in Hawaii? <laughs> <It's a> funny <laughs> personal. Uh, I'm like, well, I'm not sure how authentic that movie was. But, uh, <laughs> really yeah, noted. not at all. <laughs> uh, all right. My number three is also a little bit of a bait and switch set in Hawaii, but not, um, not featuring as Hawaii. And that's the 1981 Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's here. Jones! The world's greatest adventurer, Indiana Jones, in his first, biggest, and best adventure. It's the movie that sparked a new era of action, thrills, and entertainment to become one of the most popular films of all time. From George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and starring Harrison Ford, Trust me. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Tuesday at 8 p.m. on Paramount 20 Primetime. Directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Lawrence Kasdan, story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman. Now, obviously, um, um, 
Raiders of the Lost Ark is just iconic. I don't need to repeat the plot for everybody because I'm sure every one of your listeners has heard uh, and knows this movie. But it feels like to me it's when Kauai really hit uh, the sort of the the Hollywood zeitgeist. It's been at, at Hollywood. Hollywood has a long relationship with with Hawaii, from whether it's Waikiki or Elvis going to Kauai and doing Blue Hawaii. It's just had this long history. But you know the the realization in the early '80s that that Kauai could be and Hawaii could double as any other place really kind of opened the doors to Hollywood and Hawaii, especially because they're not neighbors. Hawaii is not a neighbor with anyone, really. It's the most isolated landmass in the world, but LA is about as close as any state can be to Hawaii, and there's a pretty easy flight there. So Raiders of the Lost Ark, Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg ended up doing a lot of other films in Hawaii through the rest of his career. And, uh, you know, how can that not be on a top five list? Because it's one of the best movies of all time. No arguments there. Raiders of the Lost Ark, classic, um, just an all time adventure movie. This is one of those movies that I cannot wait to watch with my kid when he gets of age, when he gets to the age where I don't feel like it's going to scar him for life seeing a Nazi's face get melted. <laughs> that's that's like what I have to wait for here. For sure. Great choice. Great choice. Number two for me. We're going back to the low-budget B-movie here. Again, I said before, I love them. And this is a film... I mentioned with Silk that it felt like a toned-down Andy Sidaris film. Well, I had to get an Andy Sidaris film on here. Andy Sidaris is a director who was known for what we would call triple B-movies, which stood for Bullets, Bombs, and Babes. And they were pretty much all filmed in Hawaii. He did a series of these, maybe like 10 to 12 movies, Pretty much all filmed in Hawaii. The first was called Malibu Express. But my pick is for the second of these movies, 1987's Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. It has it all. The awesome, pristine beauty of the land. The warm caress of perfect beaches. The tantalizing wetness of the blue Pacific. Hawaii. It's a great place to visit. But you wouldn't want to die there. Four of America's finest ready and willing to pay the price for paradise. Are you familiar with the Sidaris films? No. No, <laughs> no. It sounds like it's a, it's something that I need to start to like uh, look into. I, I once wrote a script called Pulp Waikiki, and this kind of feels like it falls right into that category of sort of pulpy B-movie, uh, you know, but using the Hawaii as for the production value. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is immensely entertaining. The plot of Hard Ticket to Hawaii is that a pilot and an undercover DEA agent intercept a delivery of diamonds intended for a drug lord, and the drug lord and his henchmen come in and launch a full-scale assault on these two. But of course, they're going to need the help of this agent, Rowdy Abilene is his name, and his partners. And to add to the ridiculousness, there's also a contaminated snake loose on the island that ate cancerous rats, and that's why it's like mutated. It's a bonkers plot. And you know right from the beginning, the entertainment value is going to be through the roof as this girl gets out of the water and she says, you should get in. The water's great. And he says, in the most stilted way possible, are you kidding? I've got better things to do with my body temperature. And they start making out. It's that kind of movie. Outside of the ridiculous dialogue, we get a woman who just pulls a random ninja star out of her boot and throws it into a guy's chest. But the highlight 
of this movie in terms of how bizarre it gets. There's a guy who wants to kill these dudes in a car. So he does a drive-by by skateboarding past the car, hiding his gun with a blow-up doll. So you have a guy skateboarding down the road with a blow-up doll, pulls the gun out, shoots the driver. He's not dead. So they back up real quick, hit the skateboarder who flies into the air. And while he's in midair, the passenger pulls out a four-barrel rocket launcher and blows this guy into a thousand pieces. And then just for fun, blows up the blow-up doll with the rocket while it's in midair too. That's the kind of movie this is. In terms of like the Hawaiian cred, we start with this gorgeous sunset of silhouetted palm trees. The pilot, the the uh, main characters are pilots, so of course they're gonna fly this biplane over these gorgeous waterfalls, the rainforest. We get a ton of Hawaiian shirts in here. Hard ticket to Hawaii, 1987. If you're into B movies, you're into just wildly entertaining stuff. You're definitely gonna have a good time with this. Sounds super fun. Like the visual of the the, the doll blowing up. Uh... Now I have to see this. I have to watch this film, of course. A couple of films you're, you're educating me on. Um, my number four and uh, another big movie, another big film uh, was 1993's uh, Jurassic Park, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by David Kep. On June 11th, dinosaurs and man, two species suddenly thrown back into the mix together. Can I touch it? Sure. How can we possibly have the slightest idea what to expect? Universal Pictures presents a Steven Spielberg film, an adventure 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park, rated PG-13. Special premiere tomorrow night. Starts Friday everywhere. Now, again, Jurassic Park, the man, the Dominion, the new film coming out looks so good. This has been a been a franchise that Michael Crichton created based on a book. And it was half set on the island of Kauai and half set on the island uh, of Oahu. In fact, probably three quarters set on the island of Kauai. The exteriors, the interiors, they I think they ended up flying back to Los Angeles to do, as they do with a lot of movies that get filmed in Hawaii because there are, there's only so many sound stages. But the, uh, the, in, the filming was happening in 1991 or maybe the 1992, and that's the year that Kauai had a giant uh, hurricane. So this movie was really memorable to me because we were living through that. We lived through a, a Category 4 hurricane, which destroyed a lot of homes and destroyed the uh, sets for Jurassic Park. Yet Steven Spielberg, being Spiel, Steven Spielberg, decided he wanted to use some of that footage uh, from the hurricane itself in his movie. So that big giant storm in the beginning of Jurassic Park is actually real footage of the hurricane. And he, uh, you know, rumor has it, ran out with a camera maybe himself or just one purse cameraman to get some of this crazy footage of the trees and the things, you know, how often are you living through a uh, category four hurricane and he filmed it and then they had to rebuild, you know, all the sets and get the, you know, everything back going to, you know, make this blockbuster film. And one of the premieres of Jurassic Park was actually on the Island of Kauai. So that was another early, I was, you know, in high school at that time when that movie was being filmed and it was a, you know, really memorable moment of knowing this giant film was filming on this island and then that they, you know, went through the same hardships that we all went through with this hurricane that ended up destroying our island and taking, you know, a year of our life to sort of rebuild. And kind of right when the island's put back together, this movie actually comes out and it was a huge sort of celebration of Kauai uh, and Hawaii. And yet another example, and this is as we get into my number one, something I want to talk about, uh, another example of a movie 
that doesn't didn't use Hawaii as Hawaii. It used Hawaii as backdrop for something else, which is great financially for the islands, but you know, it does leave room for young filmmakers today to make their mark on making uh, Hawaii movies that are authentic to the islands and the stories of the people from Hawaii. Sure. Uh, Jurassic Park is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's, it's funny that we went into this list with kind of two different criteria in that yours is coming from your experiences of movies being filmed there, while mine are strictly movies that are set there. And yeah, there are so many movies. I was talking about this with my wife when you had approached the topic, and she's bringing up a bunch of movies that were clearly set in or or filmed in Hawaii. But every time I had to tell her, not going to make it on my list because it's not set in Hawaii. It's just filmed there. Not Hawaii, yes, Hawaii, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so uh, great call there. Number one for me is, aside from, gosh, and again, I'm really kicking myself for forgetting to put Tropic Thunder on here. Aside from Tropic Thunder, I think this is my favorite comedy set in Hawaii. The absolutely hysterical 2008 Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Oh, yeah, that's great. Hey, you got here fast. I got a surprise for you. Peter, as you know... I love you. Are you breaking up with me? Pete, are you, um... (laughs) We're leading different lives. It's like you're standing on the dock and I'm in the lake. Sarah, I swear to God, I'll jump in the lake like a merman. Do you want to put some clothes on? Would you like to pick out the outfit that you break up with me in? Sexy crime fighter Sarah Marshall has been spotted cozying up to singer and notorious Lothario Aldis Snow. <laughs> She's dating somebody. And until I do the same thing, I'm going to feel like I want to die. Hi. 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 Do you mind not saying that? Do you want to gag me? Kind of now. I had sex with this woman who I barely even know. I'm really scared that I have an STD, Doc. Peter, I'm a pediatrician. Have you noticed you're sitting on a fire truck? For those who haven't seen Forgetting Sarah Marshall, it's about a TV show music composer named Peter Bretter. And after he breaks up, his his girlfriend breaks up with him, leaves him heartbroken. He heads to Hawaii to get his mind off of her. She's a TV star named Sarah Marshall, obviously. Unfortunately, Sarah is also on vacation there with her new muse, rock star Aldous Snow, played brilliantly by Russell Brand, who reprises the character in Get Him to the Greek. I like this for a couple reasons. First off, as a comedy, it does a rare job of not painting the main characters as one-dimensional good or bad people. And I think Sarah Marshall is a great example of this. She's done a lot of really bad things. Uh, She's been cheating on Peter for a long time. And when Aldous leaves, she tries to get back with him in a display of desperation and also jealousy. But she also gets this moment where she explains how she tried really hard to make their relationship work before it completely broke down. She's not just this one-sided devil as in some comedic movies these characters can be. It's also got a fantastic comedic cast. I rewatched this for this show and... There are so many names in here that I forgot were in this. And it's the bit parts that I think have the funniest moments. The main cast, of course, uh, Jason Siegel plays Peter Bretter. Kristen Bell is Sarah Marshall. Russell Brand, Mila Kunis. But we have Bill Hader in, in a small role. 
Jonah Hill, Jack McBrayer as this hilarious guy who's trying to figure out sex with his with his new wife. Devon McDonald as the bartender. He's great. Paul Rudd, I think, steals the show as the surf instructor who's just yeah. got some of the greatest lines. The weather outside is weather. The entire movie takes place at this Hawaiian resort, so we get the tourist staples like the luau's, the palm trees, the cliff jumping. But it also highlights some of Jason Siegel's musical talent, hints at his role in the newest Muppet movies, and we, we get to see him creating this puppet-led Dracula story. That stuff's really funny. It's not a perfect movie. The film's way too long. There are some questionable character choices near the end of the film that teeter on ruining it, but, but don't. I still think it's really funny. It's a great breakup film. And it never ceases to rekindle my crush on Mila Kunis. Forgetting Sarah Marshall, 2008, that is my number one. And that's a good choice. I, I, I remember being in LA at that time when this movie came out. And I don't know if you remember the ad campaign, the marketing campaign, yeah. which was on the giant, like, I hate you, Sarah Marshall. And like, what, what, like, what is this? <laughs> that was it. No yeah. mention of a movie or, uh, and that movie, you know, had me in hysterics and, um, you know, and I want to talk and I, and I, I loved every second of that movie. Uh, and, it, and in many ways, it's similar to the movie that I'm going to pick for for reasons of, you know, Hollywood has an obsession with with Hawaii. And this is I'm actually trying to finally pick uh, a movie about Hawaii. And yet it's all it's a, it's sometimes, uh, you know, by necessity, because people don't don't necessarily live in Hawaii. It's sort of from the outside looking in someone going to a resort like like again, like uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is so funny. Or the uh, White Lotus just came out by oh. Mike White, which is the same thing. You know, it's the horror version of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, right? Not horror, but <laughs> oh, it's it's horror for sure. But but it's it's you know again, so many people uh, from this town come to Hawaii and fall in love with it, and then want to do their movie about it. And their movie is their experience, which is going to a big resort, right? So one of the movies that came closer to to getting Hawaii as Hawaii. Uh, and it missed in a couple key ways, but uh, which I'll explain in a second, was the movie Descendants, uh, starring George Clooney, directed by Alexander Payne, written by Alexander Payne, Nat Faxon, and Jim Rash. Sorry to bother you, I'm Matt King. Yeah, I've come to pick up my daughter, Alexandra. Alex? Dad? <laughs> What's up, Dad? <laughs> What's happening? You need to come home and see your mom. I'm the backup parent, the understudy. I thought you were supposed to be getting your act together. I've been doing really well, actually. Nobody ever seems to notice that. And with Elizabeth, my wife, in the hospital, my daughter's attesting me. Look who's here. Get out of my underwear, you freak. Oh, OK. Don't Back inside now. Real good job you're doing. We have to go through this thing together, you and Scotty and me. Dad, this is Sid. He's going to be with me. I'll be a lot more civil with him around. Sup, bro? Don't ever do that to me again. I have to go around and tell people what's happening, family and a few close friends. I don't want to talk about mom with anyone. Look, whatever you two fought about, you have to drop it. Grow up. You really don't have a clue, do you? The Descendants uh, is a story of, you know, a basically George Clooney's character whose, you know, uh, wife goes into a coma he found out that she has an affair and it's also dealing with some sort of important land issues there's a vote coming up and whether or not do they sell off this sort of land trust and it tells this it tells the story of Hawaii from the perspective of the longtime 
Howley or white resident, which George Clooney uh, embodies in many ways. He reminded me of my father uh, who, you know, the way he dressed the house they had, the, the way the cars were, they did a great job in portraying this side of, of Hawaii Uh, where it missed was, you know, there, there is yet again to be a, a movie that, has really stood out for me. And then there are some young filmmakers right now that I know that are working uh, on changing this, which is sort of telling the story of Hawaii from the Hawaiian perspective. And we have this amazing um, sort of this, these people from Hawaii who have this amazing sort of oral storytelling culture where they grew up telling each other stories of creation, stories of navigation, stories of the gods and whatever. And they, they haven't uh, fully yet embraced sort of film as a medium in which to tell these stories. And again, this is changing as we speak. A lot of really young, talented Hawaiian filmmakers uh, making uh, movies on mostly on Oahu. Um, and sort of for me, one of the things was important in moving to Hawaii, into moving to Los Angeles, was to try to start telling some more of these authentic stories. I'm married to a native Hawaiian. My kids are native Hawaiian. So it was sort of the authenticity of storytelling, which was really important to me. But Descendants was the first movie that, just got all the little details right about the way they dress, the way people talk, the way people act. And it was not somebody coming from the outside to enjoy Hawaii for a week, but it was people who actually live on the islands and are dealing with real human issues. And Alexander Payne is so good at human emotion and capturing it on film and writing it. Uh, so, and obviously they won the Academy Award, I think at least her best screenplay. Uh, so, yeah, that, that movie stands out for me as, as sort of the, you know, one of the top uh, movies uh, uh, about Hawaii and really sort of capturing and getting the spirit of Hawaii and the spirit of aloha, which is you know, sort of this uh, sort of untenable, intangible thing, uh, correct. And, and in doing so, they had a movie that they made a movie that was extremely memorable, at least to me. Man, you know, I got to go back and watch The Descendants again, because I know I watched it when it first came out, but I don't remember a thing about it. And I love those writers. If I'm not mistaken, they also wrote The Way, Way Back, which I adore as well. Yeah. Really strong writers. So I got I got to go back and watch The Descendants, especially now that you've given it your blessing from the, the Hawaiian, like the native Hawaiian aspect of it. Strangely enough, a movie that's not on my list because it, 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 was wasn't set on Kauai, and I limited myself to movies either set or filmed on Kauai, uh, just because it's my home, and I wanted to do a little bit of a boost for the film culture there. Is the uh, the movie North Shore, the nineteen eighty one, maybe maybe a little later, uh, movie North Shore, which is so campy. It's a movie about um, uh, a guy named Rick Kane who flies, who's who wins a surf um, competition in Arizona in a wave pool decides he wants to become a professional surfer and moves to Hawaii to uh, see if he can compete with the surfers in Hawaii. And obviously he can't because there's a big difference between surfing in a pool and surfing in Hawaii, but he grows to sort of compete with them on, on a certain high level. And it's campy and silly. And yet every single person I know in Hawaii growing up quotes those lines from this movie, which is just filled with quotable lines. And it does get, a lot of things right about the culture. He ends up dating a local girl about what it's like to, you know, be a Hawaiian surfer and talks about the things like the hui, which is the surf gangs. And 
and why they're surf gangs and the a- angst at people coming in like this Howley surfer named Rick Kane and thinking that they're going to excel in, you know, on, on this land and we have no understanding of what it means to be Hawaiian or in Hawaii. And obviously Rick Kane grows as a character and grows to understand Hawaii better. And it, it is, you know, as sort of silly as that movie was in many, many ways, sort of iconic 1980s, you know, cult classic surf movie. It also, in many ways, got the most things right. So I, I if you haven't seen it, Jason, I highly recommend watching that movie. It's called North Shore. I have not seen it and I will put it on my list that's actually a good segue into our honorable mentions. Were there any others that you would have put on your list if you had more spots available? Um, you know, there's, again, a lot of it is for the island of, of Kauai was movies that are set there, but not but not actually about it. Like Pirates of the Caribbean was there as well. Uh, and, you know, every year a giant franchise film comes to the islands to film. Uh, but, you know, there is... Um, on Oahu, it definitely has a more, uh, you know, robust film culture. There's a movie that's just coming out that came out this year called Waikiki. I actually haven't seen it, but I've heard really good things about it. Uh, and there's a Princess Kaulani was a movie of, that was originally called The Last Princess about the last princess of Hawaii, which had some issues, but also really attempted to tell a sweet story Uh sort of fraught with historical difficulty because it was about the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. So there's, there's good films that, that they're trying. And the, in the, in one of the things that, you know, really got me inspired to be a filmmaker uh, and a TV writer and, and, and screenwriter was the movies coming out of New Zealand, uh, whale rider, one true warriors. And what New Zealand new people, for people who don't realize this, the, um, the people from New Zealand, the Maori people and the Hawaiian people, they're like really close cousins, Polynesians. They sort of came from similar areas and they have their their cultural history and identity is very similar and their stories are similar. And the Maori have managed to tell a really a number of great films about their culture. And ho- the, again, the Hawaiians haven't had the same opportunity. And, and part of that is just money. Uh, right. The New Zealand film market uh, so there's grants and you can get it from the government and they'll make these, help you make these movies. And Hawaii Hollywood will make big movies, but they're not just giving money to young filmmakers. Now that is changing. I want to do a quick shout out to Aaron Lau, who is someone I know who's a young female Hawaiian filmmaker who just got a Netflix uh, movie deal, uh, who they are going to try to make some movies. And I'm really excited to see what she is, uh, what she ends up making. Now, what about you? Um, I've got a couple. I've got, a, I guess I got a couple. So Pearl Harbor is one that uh, I did not want to put on the list just because I haven't seen it in a long time. I remember I really like the battle scenes, but in terms of the beauty yeah. of Hawaii, that's kind of drowned out in both war and uh, romance story there. The 1966 film Hawaii, which again is another one that I haven't seen for a very long time, but that one was a pretty important movie in the late 60s, 1966. I think that one came out. And that's Gene Hackman's in that movie, surprisingly. Yeah, Gene Hackman is in that movie. Uh, Max Max von Sydow, I think, is also in there. Uh, and then a movie that I love, but it only has a very short portion of Hawaii. I actually considered it, but it just didn't take enough place in Hawaii is Punch Drunk Love because he goes to Hawaii yeah. with her for oh, yeah, a, yeah. a short section of the middle. And also, um, uh, what's that movie with Nick Cage? It's uh, Oh, Leaving Las Vegas or Honeymoon in Vegas. 
Yeah, Hanimoe is a kapa'a or kapa'a, and that was also filmed on Kauai, and it really funny to see them trying to pronounce. That was actually <laughs> where I grew up, was kapa'a, so oh, okay. it was so funny. They couldn't, they couldn't say it right. That, those are those are really good choices. Hawaii, people ask me what my dream project is to adapt, and, and it is actually that James Michener book, Hawaii, uh, that was made into that film. That film was only able to capture one part of a much bigger book. And so um, I hope with the advent of limited series that someday – you know, I'm under contract now, but, but that I would, you know, love to turn that Hawaii series into Hawaii book into a series because it's just a phenomenal story. That, that is a good, that's a great choice. I'm surprised we didn't cross over at all. So listeners, you got a ton of Hawaiian films to watch, whether they're set in Hawaii or not. Take a look at the beauty that is Hawaii in film. Noah Evslin, you've been a great guest. Listeners, go check out NCIS Hawaii. It's on CBS now. I'm sure you can watch it on Hulu and and all the the streaming channels that CBS offers. And go listen to Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss as well. Uh, A great podcast with some amazing showrunners. I'm constantly amazed at how you get these these very busy people onto your show to share their uh, not only their successes, but their failures. Was there a film set in Hawaii or filmed in Hawaii that we missed? Let us know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might make it into the next show. If you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you review shows. Please tell people about the show. Any word of mouth I can get is helpful. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch NCIS Hawaii.